The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 56, to the chief musician, set to the silent dove in distant lands, a michtam of David, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light? of the living. Okay, we're in our fourth doctrine sermon. We started out with the sovereignty of God. We went to the Trinity, and then we went last week to Jesus Christ, the God-man, which was part one, his humanity. This is Jesus Christ, the God-man. <clears throat> Pardon, <two. laughs> His deity. <laughs> Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13 says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Theology really matters, and it is of prime importance in the life of human beings. Theology simply signifies the study of God and of religious belief, which is in line with that. What is God like? what are his expectations for man, and so on, are truly important subjects, because if one is wrong in his theology, and there are certain expectations of a person in order to have a right relationship with God, then that relationship is either in question or it is non-existent. There are those who hold to the law of Moses for their justification, and there are true Christians who have accepted the grace found in Jesus Christ. Both believe in the same God, but they do not accept the same amount of revelation that this God has provided concerning himself. And that further revelation of himself, meaning in what Jesus accomplished for us, will make all of the difference in one's eternity. Be assured of that. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and others claim they believe in the same God, but they reject the theology which says that God has so revealed himself in the person of Jesus, or that what is revealed of him is different based on the very nature of his deity. It isn't a matter of further revelation, rather it is a denial of what is considered orthodox. But the central point of Christian theology is that Christ is God. He is the incarnate word of God. It is not that he is not God or that he is either one of many gods or he is a lesser God. Rather, he is the Pantocrator, meaning the Almighty. To believe otherwise, then, is to believe in a false Jesus. And to believe in a false Jesus is to believe in a false gospel. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 11 and then again in Galatians chapter 1. Here's what he says from 2 Corinthians 11. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And from Galatians 1, 
I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. To accept another Jesus is to accept another gospel, and to accept another gospel is to reject the truth of God in Christ. Without the Savior, there is no salvation. Theology really matters. Now, I'll stop right there, and I'll say that my friend Mike emailed me this week, and he said, listen, I've got a friend that's a Jehovah's Witness, and I say that Jesus is God, and he says he's not, and he says, what, uh, the guy says, well, if I'm wrong, I'm just not knowing on the the concept, and therefore God will accept me. And I said, it's funny, I never give out my sermons in advance, but I did send him what I just read to you. And I said, this is what God expects of us. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's right. And ignorance of God's word is no excuse. You have to be trained out of understanding that Jesus Christ is God, just like you have to be trained out of believing in a rapture. These are things that you have to be trained out of, and there's no excuse for these things. Anyway, our text first comes from Colossians 1, it's verses 15 through 20. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, invisible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence for it pleased the Father, that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. A denial of the deity of Jesus Christ and that of the Holy Spirit can be bafflingly complex. I say this because if some from the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and start talking, unless you know the Bible and your theology is sound, They can twist what little you know to the point where you aren't sure what you believe. Getting off on a single point of doctrine, especially a major point of doctrine, will end in a complete unraveling of sound theology. Either that, or one will have a single error with a logical contradiction to that one error. This is normally found in denominational differences and generally occurs on points which are not salvific or saving in nature. But the deity of Jesus Christ is not a minor point of doctrine. It is fundamental and it is principle. To be wrong on this point will result in a completely convoluted hermeneutic or method of interpretation. To demonstrate this, we'll take the Jehovah's Witnesses as an example. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ and teach that he is a created being. They say he's the Archangel Michael. From that one incorrect point, their entire biblical hermeneutic becomes flawed. And we're going to see that throughout this sermon. And it all starts with that one premise. Jesus Christ is not God. In speaking on their doctrine, the International Bible Society says the following. Furthermore, he is not only called God, regardless of the issue concerning the translation of John 1.1, but also Savior, Lord, Redeemer, God with us, and Creator. We can pray to him. He helps us. He lives in us. He gave himself up for us. He forgives our sins. He receives worship. All things which in the Old Testament are clearly within the jurisdiction and ability of Jehovah. Yet, in the face of all this, the doctrine of the Watchtower Society would have us believe that this one is some form of created being. Frankly, not only is that incongruous, it is the worst form of blasphemy regulating to a creature the attributes of Jehovah. As you can see from that one quote, translational differences arise, theological differences are held to, and a completely different gospel because of the presentation of a completely different Jesus is accepted. How can such a vast array of differences arise when the same source text is used? It is because of the spirit of Antichrist. 
Yes, that is exactly what John says of it, as we will see as we progress through the sermon today. For now, understand that theology really matters, and that proper theology is obtained through a proper evaluation of God's superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, where we can evaluate it. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, unto us a son is given. To open our previous thought concerning the humanity of Christ, Isaiah 9, 6 was cited, for unto us a child is born. However, Isaiah continues the verse. He next says, unto us a son is given. It must have perplexed Isaiah, and indeed any who have read Isaiah's words as to what a son is given must mean. A child being born implies, and it even demands, that the child is a human being. The reference us demands this. But if unto us is speaking of humanity, and a son is being given to humanity, it appears that this son is coming from outside of humanity. Suppose the object was a cake, and the statement was made referring to the Americans and the Germans. An American might say, unto us a cake is made. It is obvious that the cake is an American cake in all its tasty goodness. But the person speaking is also dealing with the Germans, and so he says, unto us, the ingredients are given. The obvious meaning is that though the cake is made in America, and it is therefore an American cake, the ingredients have come from Germany. It is therefore German by nature. Oh, das schmeckt sehr gut. This is the thought which must be considered in Isaiah's words. There is a child born, a human being, but there is a son given. The subject of the first is a human. The subject of the second must be other than human. This must be so, because the next verse says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. If a child being born embodies the idea of humanity, the idea of the giving of a son must then imply the concept of deity, because it is directly performed by Jehovah Sabaoth, or Jehovah of hosts. Thus, when properly understood, it is God who gives the son. This might be a misunderstanding of the matter and simply a play on words, but a description of this child who is the son is then given. Taken as a whole, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Some of the responsibilities, titles, and descriptions could be argued over as to their intent, but some of them assuredly cannot be. We will look over those and pass over the others for now. First, he will be called Mighty God. How can that be? The Hebrew says, El Gibor, God Mighty. That is direct and to the point. This is even more so when considering that in the very next chapter of Isaiah, the same term, El Gibor, is given again. Here's what it says in Isaiah 10. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. So we know that he's speaking of Jehovah in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, El Gabor. There, it is speaking of Jehovah Kedosh Yisrael, or Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. It would be unthinkable, I mean literally unthinkable, for the Lord to place the only two uses in Scripture of El Gabor, or Mighty God, only one chapter apart, and expect his reader to consider one as deity and the other as some type of created being. And yet, while in a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses several years ago at the guy's house trying to appeal for the sake of his wife, what did he do? He said, well, this one in Isaiah 9 isn't capitalized, and this one in Isaiah 10 is capitalized. And I said, the Hebrew has no capitalization. 
There's none in the Hebrew. It's one word. Your translators decided to do that because they have a presupposition that does not exist in the text. It would be the epitome of confused terminology and contradictory thinking. One refers to the coming Messiah and one refers to Jehovah. Thus, the two are clearly identified as one. This is especially so when Isaiah is inspired to continue with his words by calling this one Abiad, or Everlasting Father. It is a term unique to Scripture, and it is speaking of the Father of Eternity, the Possessor of Time. The Father of Eternity, as with all of Isaiah's descriptions as speaking of the coming Messiah, is not to be confused with God the Father. The title here shows possession, not position. The father of the Hebrews is Abraham. He possesses the title even though he is dead and is no longer in the position. Thomas Edison is called the father of the light bulb because he was the one who invented and developed the light bulb. He possessed the idea and then developed it. Abiyad, the father of eternity, is the one who possesses time. He created it and he has mastery over it. This child who was born, this son who has been given, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. There is no time that he did not exist, and there is no time he will not exist. This is what this title means. Further, Isaiah says that his government will be established, and it will continue from then on, even forever. David had come and gone. It was promised that one of his sons would establish his kingdom forever, but David's forever kingdom is only in name, not in actual personal authority. What Isaiah speaks of here is a government which will have an eternal authority, implying one who will rule forever. Only one who is immortal could actually fulfill this. However, we again see the dual nature of this coming one. He is the everlasting father, meaning uncreated and eternal, and yet there is a point in which his throne is established and in which it continues on from. As the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, one can, in hindsight, look back and see the incarnation of Jesus Christ clearly referred to here. He is God, and yet he is man. But could this simply be an exalted way of Isaiah speaking, which is maybe poetic in nature? Could the Lord have used Isaiah's unique style to convey to us something that we could easily confuse, like the words of a poet who is speaking of one thing while forming words which seem to allude to another thing? The answer is no. This is not merely style conveyed by Isaiah. It is revelation transmitted from the Lord. This is perfectly certain when we read comparable words from Micah. It says in Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Here we see words equivalent to those of Isaiah. A ruler is prophesied to come, but this ruler will obviously have a beginning. This is evident from the words that he would come forth out of a location. In this case, Bethlehem Ephratah. Because Bethlehem Ephrata is a part of creation, it could not have existed into eternity past. The world is not eternal. It had a beginning. Bethlehem has a name, and it was identified as a location at some point after it came into existence at the creation. However, and at the same time, the one who Micah prophesied about is coming forth from that location, but he has motza'ah, or goings forth, which are mikadem, or from the east. It is an idiom meaning from the absolute forepart. In other words, from eternity itself. Just as from man's perspective the sun rises from nowhere, so this ruler would also come from the eternal past. There is no beginning to his coming. Instead, it simply is. The author then further defines this by saying mime olam, or from the vanishing point, meaning the place where nothing is known of it. The motza'ah, or goings forth, is a plural construct in the Hebrew language. It signifies the eternal and continual generation of the Son from the Father. There is no time that it did not occur, and it shall occur for all eternity. Charles Ellicott says of this, 
the nativity of the governor of Israel is evidently contrasted with an eternal nativity, the depth of which mystery passes the comprehension of human intellect. It must be spiritually discerned. And this is true. Israel could not, and indeed still does not, discern this. The veil remains when the law is read. What the words here clearly imply is that because he was before the creation, he must be the creator, because only the creator can exist before that which was created. But this misunderstanding is also one which goes beyond the Jewish sages, rabbis, and common folk who have overtly rejected Jesus as the Christ or Messiah. It is one which is continued on by many who supposedly accept the coming of Christ in the person of Jesus. The denial of the deity of Jesus Christ is no less damning than the denial of his humanity. This is for several reasons. First, even from the Old Testament scriptures, it is perfectly evident when compared to who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and what is written about him that he is God. Before his coming, the words could simply not be fully understood. But with his coming, they become as clear as crystal. Secondly, what is ascribed to Jesus after his coming, meaning by the writings of the apostles, is impossible to mistake when properly considered from the context of what is presented, which is what we'll look at in a few minutes. The quote by the International Bible Society, which was cited earlier, sums that up very well. What is said about Jehovah, or the Lord God in the Old Testament, is attributed directly and unambiguously to the person of Jesus in the New. Only a fool, a heretic, or a lunatic would deny the obvious nature of what the New Testament proclaims. To speak on the deity of Jesus Christ could go on literally for innumerable sermons. But all that is required is one. One does not need to provide all evidence to establish the truth of a matter. There is a point where the evidence is sufficient to do so, and then discovering all of the other such incidences can come as one matures in his understanding and study of Scripture. This is what we have done since Genesis 1 verse 1, and it is what we will continue to do as we travel through the pages of Scripture. For now, we will simply establish the fact that Jesus Christ is clearly presented as God in Scripture without feeling the necessity of crossing every T and dotting every I. All rule and authority in him is found. The government will upon his shoulders rest. And from him shall come a rule which will astound. The nations will be at peace, no longer distressed. The ink has flowed from the pen guided by my hand, but I cannot comprehend what the words say. These words are so very hard to understand. I pray the Lord reveal them to me some wondrous day. As mommy lay sleeping, exhausted from caring for the boy... He tenderly watched over her, just as he today watches over us. To be found in the everlasting Father is eternal joy. This is the amazing splendor to be found in the Lord Jesus. Our second thought today is Jesus Christ, the eternal God. The denial of the deity of Jesus Christ is an ancient heresy, overtly dating back at least to the time of Arius in the third century. It is, however, alluded to by the apostles who penned out Scripture at times. John certainly had this exact heresy on his mind when he wrote these words. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. He's trying to show that the Father is God, therefore the Son is God. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also, he's showing that they are one. If you deny the deity of the Son, you cannot have the Father. The words speak of the Father-Son relationship between the two. John is doing what he has already done throughout his gospel by connecting the two in the relationship of the Godhead. If the Father is God, which is clearly presented in Scripture, then the Son is also God. Both are God, and yet there is only one God. Further, the very reason for the way the Genesis 1 record is made is to give us insights into what God would do in Christ. In Genesis 1, as I explained in our last sermon, we read that the grass, the herb, the fruit tree, and the sea creatures, and the living creatures of the land, indeed all species, reproduce after their own kind. When one thing generates an offspring, the offspring bears the same nature as that which generated it. 
Why did God give such meticulous detail concerning this on the very first page of Scripture? It was to alert us to the coming of Christ. When we are told that Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father, it is to let us know that God has begotten a Son who is God. And because his mother is human, it is to convey to us that he is also a man. Despite being complex, the mystery of the Trinity is revealed in Scripture, and it accurately explains the Godhead. It is the only teaching which aligns with a proper analysis of the Bible. The person of Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the fullness of the Godhead to us, and it is he who worked on our behalf to reconcile us to God. And why did he do this? to destroy the works of the devil, and to remove the stain of sin which we bear and which keeps us from any relationship with the Father. It is Jesus and his cross which allows us this wonderful restoration. But the work of salvation is, as Jonah clearly states in Jonah 2.9, a work of the Lord. As he says, and as the Bible confirms, salvation is of the Lord. If salvation is of the Lord... And if Jesus were simply a created being, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, then it really wouldn't be of the Lord, except in an indirect and dubious manner. But this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses and others claim. To dispel this and to show the utter folly of it, we will look at the work and the words of the Lord from the Old Testament and then compare them to the work and words concerning Christ in the New in this, we will form a basis for the certainty of the deity of Jesus Christ. What will be presented will demonstrate that either the Bible is a completely convoluted book filled with contradiction and error, or it is a book which is given with a main purpose of showing that God himself entered into the stream of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. To do this properly, even if it is already obvious to anyone who has read the Bible, we need to ensure that we understand first who Jehovah, meaning the Lord of the Old Testament, is. In other words, is he, is Jehovah God or not? We have to do this in order to establish what we're going to do next. As obvious as that sounds, it is a necessary point of theology to determine. The first time Jehovah is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, made the heavens and the earth. Well, that seems clear enough. Jehovah Elohim, or the Lord God, made the heavens and the earth. It follows nicely after Genesis 1.1. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God bara, he created the heavens and the earth. However... As you can see, the word used in Genesis 1-1 is bara, or create. In Genesis 2-4, it is asa, or made. Are the two being used synonymously or not? Someone who wanted to argue the matter might do so. The Jehovah's Witnesses do exactly that with John 1 verse 1. As there isn't time here to argue foolishly, we will move on. The third time Jehovah is mentioned is in Genesis 2, verse 7. It says this, And the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That follows in a precise manner after Genesis 1, where it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It would be rather difficult to justify denying that these verses clearly identify Jehovah as not merely the maker, but the creator, and thus God. But we will cut to the chase and simply go to Isaiah to establish this without any doubt at all. Here's what it says in Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The claim is made explicitly elsewhere as well, but this is clear. There is one God, and he is Jehovah the Lord. The Old Testament proclaims this truth both implicitly and explicitly so many times and in so many ways that it is impossible to be considered otherwise. With that baseline established, something that we had to do, 
that there is one God and that Jehovah is that one God, it is now our privilege to determine if Christ Jesus is that same Lord God. One must obviously hold to the New Testament as scripture in order to do this. But supposing that it is so, then this is our set goal which lies ahead of us. To do this, all we need to do is to provide a list of Old Testament references referring to Jehovah and then place them side by side with New Testament references concerning Jesus and then see what comes up, okay? The list will be long but not exhaustive. It is simply one which may help some poor soul with a family member lost in a cult to help him see the error of his ways. Who did Isaiah 44, 6, which I just read, say is the Redeemer? The Lord was clear. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. But what does Scripture say about Christ Jesus? It is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jehovah is the Redeemer, and yet Christ Jesus is the Redeemer. One plus one here should equal two in your mind. What else did Isaiah 44, 6, we're not leaving that verse yet, tell us about Jehovah? He said, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. There were lots of kings of Israel, but the context of what is said about Jesus in the New Testament is clear. His kingship is on a completely different level. This is seen, for example, in Nathaniel's words. Who was the king of Israel at the time of Nathaniel? Herod, remember? Okay, Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It was clearly understood that Jesus was not the ruling king of Israel at that time. Therefore, his words were proclaiming that Jesus is, in fact, Jehovah. The premise follows through the New Testament when speaking of God, the kingdom of God, Jesus, and so on. But is that all that we can find out of Isaiah 44, 6? Or is there more? Well, Jehovah proclaims this, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And what does the New Testament proclaim? From the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's Revelation 22. Jesus said it. Here in one verse from Isaiah, there are at least five examples of Jehovah of the Old Testament bearing the same titles, positions, or responsibilities as those of Christ in the New. In your theology, one plus one should equal two. There are many more of these to be considered. This is said of Jehovah in Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Christ claims explicitly that he is the one Isaiah prophesied about with these words from Revelation 22. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Jehovah again adamantly proclaims that he is the only God in Isaiah 46. In his words, he proclaims, for I am the Lord, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. But from the same passage as before in Revelation 22, Jesus also said, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. The Lord Jehovah declares the end from the beginning only because he is the beginning and the end. It is impossible to be otherwise. And yet Jesus claims that same position without any ambiguity at all. In Isaiah 44, one of the titles that Jehovah proclaims of himself is that of being the rock. Indeed, he says that there is no other. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. He was making an obvious allusion to the rock in the wilderness from which water flowed. It was something every Israelite would know and they would understand. And yet, Paul says this of Christ Jesus in the New Testament. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Using similar terminology, the following is said concerning Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, 
the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. But what do both Paul and Peter say concerning Christ Jesus in the New Testament? They are in agreement on this. First Paul, when speaking of faith in Christ, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's speaking about who? Jesus Christ. That's correct. And Peter, he proclaims exactly the same message when speaking about Jesus. Thus, he equates Jesus with Jehovah. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Either Paul and Peter were blasphemers or they are rightly proclaiming that Jehovah has come in the flesh as Jesus Christ. But they don't stop there. Jehovah adamantly proclaims that there is one and only one Savior and that he is it. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior, says Isaiah 44, verse 1. Paul then picks up on that and says the following about Jesus. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is one of the numerous times that Christ Jesus is referred to as Savior. And what is the honor that Israel's only Savior will receive? Jehovah himself tells us in Isaiah 45, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. The Lord, Jehovah, makes that awesome and all-inclusive statement. There are no exceptions. If Jesus were not the Lord, it would include him too. But what does Paul say in Romans 14? There can be no mistake. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking about Jesus. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And again, Paul confirms what scripture so faithfully testifies to in Philippians chapter 2. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. So adamant is Jehovah concerning this precept, meaning bowing before him that he also proclaims the following. We will bow before him because of his glory. That is the purpose of his words. He says so explicitly twice in Isaiah. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another. But John and the other apostles then ascribe this same glory to Christ Jesus. So many times does this happen that it would take all day to cite them all. But this one will suffice. I used to have this on the side of my truck. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Speaking of shepherding, this is said of the Lord in Isaiah 40, 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. What Isaiah says is comparable to David's words of Psalm 23, when speaking of the Lord, Jehovah. There he said, the Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah is my shepherd. And yet Jesus proclaims, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Either Jesus was a blasphemer, or he is the Lord Jehovah. One plus one in theology always equals two. 
from this, the apostles identified Jesus as the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20, and as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, again, clearly identifying Christ Jesus as Jehovah. The words of the author of Hebrews both implicitly and explicitly demonstrate that Jesus is Jehovah. This is so clear and so obvious that only the poorest of scholars could miss the significance of the intent. He cites a verse from the Old Testament, which is applied to Jehovah, and then he says that the verse is speaking of Jesus. This occurs time and time and time again. It is a pattern which, as we have seen, is repeated by Peter, John, and Paul again and again. Whereas Jehovah the Lord was the focus of all attention of the Old Testament, the title is never used in the New. Instead, Jesus is the focus of all attention, and the same verses, titles, positions, and analogies which are used concerning Jehovah are used concerning Jesus. Though not nearly exhaustive, we have provided enough of them to demonstrate that the New Testament writers clearly and unambiguously identified Jesus Christ as the incarnate Jehovah, the Lord God. As we saw in a previous sermon, but which we will repeat again to ensure your brain has received a new squiggle, even Luke, the great chronicler of the life of Christ Jesus, was very careful to note the deity of Christ throughout his epistle. Following what he says here, and then carefully reading the rest of his gospel narrative, you will see how meticulous he was to ensure that no doubt of this particular point would arise. He said in Luke 8, now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This wasn't a slip of words, but rather it was a carefully placed note that Luke was proclaiming that Jesus is God. As you read through the Gospels, make a note of such things. They appear constantly there, as well as in the book of Acts and also throughout the epistles. The authors of the New Testament proclaimed that Jesus is God because they believed with all of their hearts that Jesus is God. Before we finish, and to qualify what I said a moment ago, the name Jehovah is never mentioned in the New Testament, but he is referred to from time to time with other words, such as kurios, when speaking of him. The only instances of the divine name, Jehovah, being used in the New Testament are from translational insertions in some Bibles, but the name itself is never used in the original manuscripts. And I will tell you about this right now. The New World Translation of the Bible, the Jehovah's Witnesses, say that they've translated it right out of the original languages. And what have they done? They've taken a translation of the Hebrew New Testament in order to make their translation by saying Jehovah. But guess where the Hebrew came from? It didn't come from a Hebrew person. It came from a Greek translation of the New Testament, which is the original language of the New Testament. And it even says right there at the top of the Hebrew translation, translated out of the original languages. But they deceived their people by doing this. They used one document which fits their twisted version of the Bible, which was a polemic translated by a person named Hashem. He wrote a polemic against the New Testament and a translational polemic against it by inserting Jehovah into the Bible. He was trying to discredit who Jesus is, and that's what they use in their translation of the New World Translation. If you want any of that information, I've got the entire NWT back there with a thousand notes in it. Go ahead and take it home and study it. I want it back, okay? <laughs> Jesus is the focus of the New because he is the Lord God Almighty. To deny this fundamental principle of who he is, then, is to deny him. The father-son relationship within the Godhead does not mean that there is one God and another is not God. Nor does it mean that one is the Lord God and another is a lesser God. Together with the Holy Spirit, they are one essence expressed in three individual persons. To summarize, what we have done is to first establish that Jehovah is God and that there is none other. From that logical stepping stone, we have then demonstrated that the position, attributes, titles, and authority of Jehovah belong to the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not contradictory, nor is it convoluted. It is clear, precise, and unambiguous in this manner. Therefore, there is no need to argue over the wording of John 1 verse 1, nor any of the other verses which are disputed by those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. 
those verses simply confirm that what they are proclaiming is in accord with scripture on this larger level and what it already confirms. One should not miss the forest for the trees. The trees can be, and indeed they are argued over, but the forest is one large proclamation of the eternal God, Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Jesus Christ is Lord, and thus shall our proclamation be to the glory of God the Father. From the previous sermon, we learned that Jesus is fully human. In his humanity, he is uncreated except as is incidental to the initial act of creation. His humanity descends from Adam, through Abraham, through David, and so on. In this sermon, we have learned that Jesus Christ is fully God, nothing less. Thus, Jesus is the God-man. He is not a finite human who is the infinite God. That is a logical contradiction. Rather, he is a human who is also God. Two natures which never overlap, but in which there is no separation. Next, we will look at the doctrine of atonement and why this incarnation, this God-man, was necessary for our atonement. Only in understanding the nature of Jesus Christ, that he is God and that he is man, can what Christ came to do be fully understood. This simple gospel is, in fact, simple. But the substance behind it is amazingly complex. It requires great precision of thought in order to avoid heresy, which then leads to a false Jesus and thus a false gospel. If you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord, that in Romans chapter 10 is saying, not Lord as in master. It is saying Lord as in he is God. That is what that proclamation is saying. And without that proclamation, as that guy was trying to say that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, oh, well, we believe Jesus Christ is Lord. They mean it under the term of master. They do not accept him as God. They have called on a false Jesus, and they cannot be saved by a false Jesus because a false Jesus produces a false gospel. You must have the God-man for our atonement, and it is no gospel at all. I will take you very quickly so you can hear the gospel read to you in case you have never come to this conclusion in your life that you might be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. We're going to talk about that, I think, in two sermons. And I'm going to, you're not going to believe how easily that can be manipulated by people that you have listened to on TV. So, and you don't even know what's happening. You have to be very precise. So I'm going to give you two examples. If you don't want to hear me talking about somebody you might like, don't come for that sermon because I'm going to have to use them so that you understand where their theology is wrong. I'll read it again. This is the simple gospel. Here it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. Now, here's how you appropriate that. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, and I want you to understand that this is how you appropriate that. If you add anything to it, or if you change the order, it is not the gospel. Okay? Here we go. 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, some translations say Jesus is Lord, so you understand it is speaking of the deity of Christ, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You heard the gospel. That is how you appropriate it. You accept it, and you believe in your heart, and you say Jesus is Lord. He is God. That's all that is required. Imagine how simple it is to twist that. How simple. You're going to find out. You're going to say, I've been listening to that guy for years, and I didn't know that he was giving a wrong gospel. Doesn't mean he's not saved, but he's telling people the wrong thing. It's so simple. That's it right there. And then after that, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, the moment you believe, that's all you have to do is just believe you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a promise. It is called a guarantee. We're going to talk about that one in a couple more sermons as well. Is salvation eternal or is it not? You need to know these things because if you get that wrong, you are going to tell somebody a false gospel if you tell them that in advance of giving them the gospel. And then they have a wrong picture of who Christ is and what he came to do. Everything fits together like one harmonious unit. Then you start pulling on that twine and pretty soon 
The whole blanket is gone. It's just a string. All right? Please call on Jesus Christ today. Go to the simple gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Read it again. Go to Romans 10, 9 and 10 and ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and to come into your heart and to just bless you for the rest of your life. Whether you're in pain and sorrow or whether you're happy and prosperous and making a lot of money, it doesn't matter. This is a temporary life which is going to be over in a flash. And then we're going to be in the presence of the Lord forever. Please call on Jesus Christ. I've got a uh, question for you. Ron here last week was sitting in his home in New Hampshire and he got it. Remember, nobody got Acts 1. I had to say Acts and then I kind of said what? And He got it. He got the Maserati this morning. He got a picture with it. Yeah, here we go. Our text verse today, Colossians 1, said that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He sustains all things. Where is a second verse which also teaches this explicitly? Hebrews 3 minus 10. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Minus 11 minus um, uh, 8 is 3. Is that right? Hebrews, it's Hebrews 3. I think it's verse 1. No, it's not 11. But you're right. You get a Maserati just for being right. Hang on a second here. Now you got me confused because I knew it. I, I said Hebrews 3, 1 in my mind, and then you said that, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Hebrews, um, uh, where is this? Hebrews 3, it says, um, uh, where is, oh, see, you said 3. It's Hebrews 1, verse 3. That's what it is. Okay, but you got it right. You got the right book. Hebrews three eleven talks about, I'll tell you what that says. It says, um, 3.11 says, um, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But you got Hebrews right. You were like me. You got a, a dyslexic of the brain. So I'm going to give you a Maserati. It says here in Hebrews 1, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the power of his word. He's sustaining all things by the power of his word. When he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's Hebrews 1 verse 3. It says the same thing as Colossians 1 15 through 20. Okay, there you go with that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to uh, come into your presence and to hear the word which reveals that Jesus Christ is God, that he is Lord to your glory. You're not jealous of this. He's you. He is God. There's three members of the Godhead in one essence. God. There is a Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord God, there is Jesus with you. So we accept that. We have to accept it because that's what this book teaches. So help us to grasp that, to hold fast to it, and not sway from it ever. In the days of our lives, let us hold fast to this confession that we have made and then to tell others about it so that they are well-versed on it and that they don't make the theological error of running into a false Jesus and thus a false gospel. And Lord, we certainly pray for the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this service who are having their troubles and trials. And we would ask, Lord, that you would be with them through those times and help them to uh, overcome them. And should you withhold your hand of healing, that they would understand that you have given these things to them for a purpose and that everything serves a purpose in your will. Even our own afflictions and even our own trials, they serve a purpose which we may not understand, but which we should accept. Help us to be that way. Help us to... Uh, be a light to others in this world of darkness. And Lord, may you be glorified through our actions day and night throughout the rest of our lives. May it be so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.